All right, this is a powerful passage of Scripture, and we're going to spend a few minutes today looking at it a little bit more before we go on to um, looking at what he tells us in chapter 4 next week. But I want to start by simply asking this question of you. How many of you are goal-driven people? You like to set goals, all right? How, how many of them like that? How many of you hate goals? They just kind of, because they're out there, and it, all it says is, I failed again. I've, you know, I've, that's for me, sometimes that's the way it, it, it feels. Now, I want you to think about your goals, those of you who are really goal-driven, and I ask yourself, how have my goals changed over time? Am I pursuing the same things today that I did five years ago or 10 years ago? What are the things that I'm living for? When I was a, a younger man in my career in, as a television director and producer, my goals were very focused in on winning awards, on getting more viewers, on producing programming that um, I thought would turn the world upside down. It, none of it ever did, but it felt like it might. This next show would be so amazing and it was forgotten about 20 minutes after the program ended because that's the nature of television. And so it didn't take me very long to realize that the goals that I was living for in my career were not really goals worth dying for. They weren't goals worth investing my heart and my life in. Paul is in prison. His early life had been characterized by a zeal for God, driven by his religious upbringing, and he was a persecutor of the church. And he put all that he was into trying to purify the religion and because he thought Jesus Christ was, was not the Messiah. Until one day, he meets him on the road to Damascus and his life is completely changed and he realized that everything he was living for was wrong. It had some good foundations, but he had missed the most important part. And then he becomes a missionary and his life is engaged in taking the gospel to different continents and planting new churches. And, and it's an amazing time of adventure, of seeing God do wonderful things. But now he's sitting in prison. But it is there in prison where he's chained to a guard where his true life pursuit is revealed. And he talks about the thing that he really is living for more than anything else. What is his goal? Well, let's, let's see. He says in verse 14, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says that now he realizes that the deepest desire of his life, the greatest pursuit that he could ever pursue is to make his prize Christ himself. That's what he wants to live for. And it is a goal worthy of all of his life. Now, what does that look like? This prize, this upward call that he's longing for, living for. Well, he tells us what that is in the verses that Keith read for us earlier, but back up just a little bit to verse 8. So if you're there in Philippians chapter 3, back up to verse, um, the end of verse 8, 
And he says, this is what I'm living for. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Here he lists out what he's living for, what he believes is the most important thing we can pursue in life. And I want to encourage you that there are some life goals here that are worthy for you and I to pursue as well with all that we are. His first life goal is to gain Christ. That's what he says in verse 8. And he describes how that occurs. He says, to be found in Jesus Christ, not because I've earned it, not because I've proven to be more zealous or more religious, but by faith. And the greatest pursuit any of us can have would be to know the God who created us, to gain a relationship with him. Some of you are here today and you don't have a relationship with God. Maybe you know some things about him. You've gone to church some. You've discovered some things. And, and there's a draw. You see something about Jesus that, that attracts you. But you've not yet gained him as your own. You don't yet have a relationship with him. Today, he is inviting you to simply call upon his name. Say, Jesus, I... I If you really are who you say you are, I want to know you. And so today I'm asking to know you. I call upon the name of Jesus because the Bible says that you are the Savior, that you have taken this problem that we have of sin because all of us fall short. All of us don't measure up to perfection. All of us are sinners. And you took my place as a perfect, righteous, holy God. You willingly gave your life for me. If you love me that much, I want to know you. Would you just ask him right where you are right now, Jesus, if that's true, I want to know you. The promise of the scripture is if we call upon his name, we will be saved. And it begins in that point. And if, if you do that today, We would love to visit with you and help you grow and understand what that relationship looks like. Help you take steps that draw you further into that relationship, steps of obedience, steps of discovery. In a couple of weeks, we're going to have a a celebration of baptism, and maybe that's uh, something that you hear. Maybe you've already embraced Christ, but you're ready for that next step in your relationship with him. Paul says that's his number one life goal, is to gain Christ. But he goes on, he says, I don't want to stop just there. I don't want to just be saved and have that box checked off. If God is real, I want more of God. And so his next life goal is one absolutely worthy of pursuing. He says he wants to know Christ, not just know about him. You see, the challenge is oftentimes we can get caught up in knowing Christ like we know a historical figure. Or or maybe a better illustration is is, is maybe your understanding of Christ is something like my understanding of Queen Elizabeth. 
I know who she is. I know kind of the general area of where she lives. I know a little bit about what she's done. But I confess, I have never met her. I've never spent any time with her. And there are people that know her far better than I do. Ben Bowman, for instance. (laughs) Ben knows a lifetime's worth of knowledge more about Queen Elizabeth than I do. But I'm pretty sure thus far, you've not yet met her, have you? One of his life goals would be, I'm sure, to meet Queen Elizabeth. It would be, that would be cool. That would be amazing. We can do that with Christ. We can know a lot about him, but never meet never experience his presence. Paul is saying, that's the pursuit of my life. That is worth living for. I want to have a personal intimacy with the God who created me. And that's what he invites us to. You know, I've never been invited to Buckingham Palace. But I've been invited by the God of the universe into the throne room of the creator. How amazing a privilege is that? And if I was to to be satisfied with just knowing about Christ instead of being in a growing relationship with him, I'm pretty sure that when I come to the end of my life, I will discover I missed out on the greatest treasure that could ever be. Well, his third goal is to experience the power of Jesus' resurrection. I want to know Christ and the power of his his resurrection. Paul knows that the greatest event in all of history is Jesus rising up from the grave. Now, he had been a person who persecuted the church because they believed in the resurrection. It was the belief that Jesus rose from the dead that said he was the Messiah. And because he did not believe that, he actively persecuted people for their belief. He was engaged in bringing to um, uh, capture and imprisonment and trial to pit those who believed that Jesus rose from the dead on trial for death. He was there at Stephen's stoning. He was standing, holding the coats, approving of what was going on. And so he's, his whole life has been turned around because he's encountered the risen Savior, and now he would the power of his resurrection changes absolutely everything. And he wants to know more and more about it. And he wants to see that power bring transformation in his life and in the lives of others. His life goal next is to share in Jesus' sufferings. He wants to not only know about him and not only experience the power of that relationship, but to share his heart. God invites us to know him that well. And then finally, his ultimate life goal is to become like Jesus in his death and resurrection. The rest of the verse, that's what it means. Becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection. 
Now, that's kind of a mysterious passage for us, and we're going to unpack that just a little bit, but it is the key because everything in this chapter has to do with the resurrection. That's why it ends, the chapter ends with the physical transformation of our bodies. But everything that he desires most is centered in on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His ultimate prize is to become like Jesus. The Bible tells us that we were created in God's image or likeness. And because we were created in his likeness, we have um, a spiritual nature that is like God's. We have gifts and abilities and creativity that uh, are given to us as a reflection of his image. But that reflection has been marred by our sin, by our selfishness, by our rebellion against God, where we basically say, God, I want to do things my way. It has distorted the image of God. And so when Paul is saying, I want to become like Jesus in his death and in his resurrection, he's saying, I want to become the person God originally created me to be. Our world is in a desperate identity crisis. We are trying to figure out who we are, who we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to live for, and the answer is found in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ because he came not only to break down the wall of sin that separates us from God, but to restore us to become the men and the women he created us to be. And that Creation, when it is restored, is transformed into the likeness of Christ. That's what we see all through the scriptures, that ultimately we have been created, as Romans says in Romans 8, 27, we are predestined, our design, our purpose is to be conformed to the image of Christ, to become that which we were created to be, to reflect the image of God through our life. That's what Paul says is his ultimate purpose. He's gone through his life. He's in prison. He's reflecting back, and he says, you know what? This is what I want to live for. It's more important than anything else. And God, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, makes it possible for us to become the people we were meant to be, to have a relationship with him and a connection with him, to be united to Jesus Christ as God originally designed for Adam and Eve to be united to him in the Garden of Eden before sin. There was a connection that he is now restored. He says in verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. He says, I want to live like who I really am. Paul was a Roman citizen. He was Jewish by um, his heritage and his culture, his ethnicity. But his real citizenship, his real identity was connected to Christ, and that's who he wanted to be. And so this whole theme focuses on, of this chapter focuses on, on the resurrection, And for us to really grasp it, we need to understand that there are three dimensions to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Number one, there is resurrection past. 
our inheritance that we receive through Christ's victory. Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, you and I can have spiritual life. We can be born again because he rose from the dead. We can have salvation. We can be rescued from ourselves. We also have forgiveness. It is his blood that covers over our sin. We have justification. We are clothed in the rightness of Jesus. We are, we are stood and declared as just, even though we don't earn it, because he earned it, and he proved it in the resurrection. Because of his resurrection, we are a new creation. Because of his resurrection, we can be adopted as the children of God and have God um, be our father in, in an absolute, intimate sense where we're connected to him. And we can be members of the body of Christ, united with him and with one another because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What he did, he completed. When he, what he did on the cross, he completed when he stepped out of the grave and walked again alive. That is the resurrection. That is our inheritance. And it is beautiful. There is also for us the promise of our resurrection future, which is our completion in Christ's victory. This happens at the return of Jesus Christ. And it is our great hope. We live in a world where there is very little hope. In his prayer, Trevor mentioned the deep atheism of, of this land. And what happens is when you come to the point where you face death, you realize that if atheism is all that we have, there is no hope. There is nothing beyond the grave and there is very little hope even in this life unless God is real and he proved that he is real through his resurrection. But he now offers us this incredible hope. And it, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 gives us um, an information about why we long for the return of Christ. We long for the things that are wrong about this life, the sickness, the brokenness, the tears, the despair to be made right. In 2 Corinthians 5, he says, For we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We have waiting for us this great completion that when Jesus Christ returns, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then those who remain will be gathered up with him in the air. And that resurrection offers us some other great promises. We'll be set free from sin. We will be perfected as Christ is because sin will be done away with. We will receive a new body. The restoration of God's image that reflects on us will be completed at his return. There'll be a deliverance from all pain and sickness and disease and tears. Because Christ will transform our lowly, broken human body to be like his risen body. That's our hope. But there's one more dimension that is highlighted in this passage of Scripture and many other passages of Scripture as well. There is a resurrection present as well. There's resurrection past, which is completed. 
There's resurrection future, which we are anticipating, and there is a resurrection present, which we are to live right now. And that's what Paul is addressing here in this passage. He wants to live out the resurrection of Jesus now because that leads to our transformation through Christ's victory. Here's some of what we receive by the power of Jesus Christ's resurrection at work in us now. Joy. Joy comes because God is restoring us. He's changing us. The fruit of the Spirit is something that's produced by the power of the risen Christ. The ability to obey God comes because of the resurrection of Jesus. See, oftentimes as Christians, we become so focused on the cross, which is absolutely essential, that we forget the power of the resurrection. The cross paid the price for my sin. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ enables me to live a life that is changed and obedient to God. I need the resurrection desperately to live because it is in the resurrection that we have life. Our new identity comes from the resurrection. Our union with Christ comes from the resurrection. The great theological word sanctification, being made pure, is the work of the resurrection. And ultimately, our transformation, our change of being conformed in the image of Christ comes from his resurrection. Now, here's the challenge. We can know about these things because they are truths of the Scripture. And the promise of the Scripture is that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. It is a proclamation from God, and he says it is true. It is legal. In fact, the Scripture goes on to say that we are already risen with Christ. In Colossians chapter 3, we are risen with Christ, and we are seated with him right now. It's a legal truth, but for most of us, including myself, often it is not an experiential truth. So how does a a legal truth become an experiential truth in your life or in my life? Well, the answer is going to sound really simple, but if we practice it, we will find it revolutionary. It is simply this. We have to live as if it's true. In order for a legal truth to become an experiential truth, we have to live as if it is true based upon what God said and what God did. That's why this is a life of faith. We live as if everything he tells us is true because it is. Now, the best way I can explain this that I know of is to to go back to a legal event in my own life. On December 30th, 1983, at 7.35 in the evening, a pastor pronounced Rebecca and I, husband and wife. At that moment, we were married. Legally, there was a signature and witnesses that affirmed that it was true. We had a marriage license from the state of Indiana that proclaimed that we were married. Legally, we were married. But if I would have taken that legal truth and not begun to live it, it really wouldn't have made a whole lot of difference in my life. I would have had a piece of paper 
And legally, I would have been married, but unless I lived as if we really were united as one, as husband and wife, I would have missed out on the most beautiful marriage relationship I could have ever imagined. And here's, here's the amazing thing. I was just as married in 1983 as I am today. But my experience, my knowledge, my intimacy, my connection with that has grown astronomically over the last 30 plus years. Going through challenges, um, through grief, through hardship, through disease, going through those struggles together and going through incredible joys together has bonded our relationship ever closer together. And so from an experiential standpoint, I am more married now than I was 30 years ago. But legally, I was fully married. I had all the benefits at that moment. The same is true with our relationship with Christ. When you come to Christ, he gives you all of his benefits, all of the inheritance that he promises is given to us. But unless we live as if it's true and live in union with him, just like a husband and wife live in union with each other, we will not experience the joy and the power of it. That's what this passage is talking about. Now, it centers around the resurrection. And I want to look back at this verse because there's a, um, a little bit of a challenge in understanding Philippians chapter 3, verse 11. Because in verses 10 and 11, we see the resurrection. He says, I want to know the power of the resurrection. And then he goes on in the next verse and say he wants to attain the resurrection. And in English, it, it sounds a little bit confusing because the resurrection already happened of Jesus, right? It's a, it's a finished event. Well, part of the answer is to go back and look at, in the original language, we find out that resurrection in these two verses are different words. The first one is a word picture in Greek, and it means to stand up. When he says the power of the resurrection, he's saying that Jesus Christ, when he stood up, a completed act, that power changed absolutely everything. For the Greeks, they would use these word pictures in order to portray the meaning of words. And it was really pretty simple. Um, dead people lie down. Living people stand up. Not exactly rocket science, but a pretty good image, right? He's saying, and the standing up is a finished act. You're up. You're proving that you're alive. And that's what Jesus Christ did. But the second time where he says, I want to attain the resurrection, it is a totally different word, and it means I want to come to the rising up. In other words, what he's saying is because Jesus rose from the grave, now I want to live as if that is true and allow that power to raise me up as well. We see the same thing in um, one of the verses that we use for baptism in Romans chapter uh, 6, where it says, buried with Christ in baptism, rising again to walk in newness of life. It is that picture of identifying with the death and burial of Jesus Christ, and then by his power, we are risen up to be something totally different. And we live as if it's true. 
And so there is a very real sense in this power of the resurrection that it becomes progressive in transforming us to be more and more like Christ. Maybe a a good way for you to picture it would be this. In John chapter 12, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. He spoke a word. He said, come forth. And Lazarus rose. He was dead. He's now alive. That is the work of the gospel. What God does, what he promises to do in us when we call upon his name is that he takes us who were dead in our sin and he brings us to life. And that part is completed. When you call upon the name of Christ, you are saved. But in practice, in experience, we are often a lot like Lazarus because Lazarus had a problem when he came out of the grave. What was it? His grave clothes, right? He was still covered in all that oldness, just like us. Our old nature clings to us just like the grave clothes of Lazarus. And so Jesus says, unbind him. Cut away the grave clothes so that he can live the life I've given him. That's what Paul is saying here in this passage. He's saying, I want to live the life that Christ has given me. I want to live as if it is true. And here's my challenge to each of us, starting with myself today. What if we were to take these verses and live as if they were true? What if we were to take the promises of God and live as if they are true? How will we be changed? You see, we have been given an incredible privilege. We've been given an incredible gift, and God is calling us to an ultimate goal of saying, Lord, I want to become more and more like you. I want the power of your resurrection to rise me up so that I live like who you rescued me to be. That's Paul's goal. That's his ultimate life. He wants to become like him in his death and his resurrection and live in such a way that he senses the joy and presence of Christ in him and that others see the reflection of Christ through him. So here's how to pursue the prize. He says, that's my prize. That's what I desire. That's what I want to see happen. And he gives us in this chapter some instructions that that we can follow. Verse 12, chapter 3. He says, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Because he took a hold of me and claims me as his, as he claims you as his, if you have faith in him. He says, that's what I want to make my reality, my experience. I want to live as if it's true. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. I'm not there yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you, which is an incredible promise. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. 
In other words, what he's already shown us, we need to live up to that. We need to live as if it's true. But how do we get there? Well, he gives us this instruction. He says, first of all, if you want to pursue the goal of becoming more like Christ, having the power of the resurrection, take off the grave clothes of your old nature so that you can live as this new creation, then first thing we need to do is don't don't focus on your past achievements. That's pride. Paul said that his accomplishments earlier in the chapter, he says, I've cast those aside. They don't mean anything. They are rubbish. He says, that wasn't worth living for. It wasn't a worthy goal. God did some good things. I did some bad things. But I'm not going to focus on my past achievements. Many of us can get so caught up in trying to be successful that it can keep us from pursuing the true prize of becoming like Jesus Christ. He didn't save us to make us successful. That's the mindset of the world. He saved us to bring us into intimacy with him and to make us holy, to make us like his son. That's why Paul gives an important warning here in the next verses. He says, brothers, join in imitating me, verse 17, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many whom I have told you and now tell you even with tears, Walk as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And they glory in their shame because their minds are set on earthly things. He's saying if you want to pursue the right goal, put your mind in the right place. He's going to show us how to do that in the next chapter, in chapter 4. He wants to remind us our true citizenship is that we're not of this world. We belong to Christ. So we need to not focus on our past achievements or on the mindset of the world. Secondly, we need to forget our past failures. They are forgiven. Don't allow the enemy to so burden us with guilt that it cripples us. But at the same time, desire the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I was thinking about that this morning, and I think... Actually, today may have been the first time I've ever prayed and asked the Lord to convict me. Because I don't know about you, I don't really like being convicted. I'd ask if anybody does, but you would then be convicted of lying So if you said yes. <laughs> so I know it's not true. But do you realize conviction is good? It's beautiful. Because he convicts us so that he makes us more like you, more like him. It's a good thing. And that's what he says here in this, in this verse earlier. He says, if we think, if, uh, let, <clears throat> excuse me, if in anything we think otherwise, God will reveal it to us. He reveals it to us not to make us feel guilty, but to transform us. Because he gave his life for you. He loves us so much, he wants us to experience his joy, and his life to the full. That's why he can fix us, so we can be free to live out who he's called us to be. Thirdly, recognize that neither you nor anyone else has arrived. Paul says, I'm not there yet. Neither are any of us. We're all a work in progress. 
We all have areas where the Lord needs to transform us and change us, but what we're determined to do is to keep moving on and say, Lord, have your way with me. And fourthly, we're to reach forward. We're to choose to make Jesus our all in all. Straining forward. He says, Paul mentions God's call. And in the New Testament, when this word is used of a Christian, it always refers to God's calling us to be conformed day by day to the likeness and image of Christ Jesus. The idea is, is a straining, of straining is an athletic one. It, it requires discipline and exercise. That's why it's so important for us to be in God's word on a regular basis and to be in fellowship with other believers. That's why the small groups and the Bible studies are so important because we can't do this on our own. We need one another. Your gifts, your heart, your insight to God's word is needed by others and you need them. We are running this race. We're pressing on to this goal together as the body of Christ. One of the ways that we can begin to do that is to change the way we think and the way that we pray. I'm trying to challenge myself to change my praying and use far less of the word I. It's as simple as that. I have been united with Christ. You have been united with Christ. Therefore, I should first be asking in prayer, not what I want, but God, what do you want? What is your will And what do you want us to do? Because it is your power that enables me to do anything that I do. So I'm praying a little bit more we, but a whole lot more you. Lord, I want to be focused on you. Change my thinking so that I'm thinking less about me and more about you. And that applies to the most ordinary things of life. To being a man to being a father, to being a husband, to the work that we do, to the simple decisions of life. God wants us to live united with him. And then finally, I believe what Paul instructs us to do is simply to live as if we really do belong to Jesus. To live as if he not only rose from the grave 2,000 years ago, but that he is actively rising us up to conform us into the image of Christ. He is working to change you and me, to draw us close and enable others to see the reflection of Christ in our love, in our actions, in our attitudes, in the way that we live. What if we were to live as if it was true? What difference would it make? When we were back in the States, um, Becky and I went to um, one of our son's churches where he serves on staff, and, um, and worship was sweet and was beautiful, but there was one particular song that they, they sang that I hadn't heard before that we're gonna, the worship team's going to lead us on in, in a moment, and it, it was a beautiful anthem that talked about Jesus Christ and what he accomplished and his resurrection, but it went on to also have... A a chorus that proclaims how his name is victory. The name of Jesus Christ is victory. But then the bridge talked about how the risen one, the one who stood up from the grave, is now rising us up by saying, The resurrected king is resurrecting me. 
And I realized that's what I've been trying to understand is, Lord, how do, what does this attain the resurrection mean? It means that you're working in transforming me into your likeness. And so as we sing it, I want to encourage you to make it a prayer that we would live as if it was true and allow the Lord to change us. So Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of the gospel that has transformed us, taken us from death to life. But Lord, help us to live as if it is true, to make that our goal, to live as if your promises, your provision, what you say in your word is absolutely true. Change us, Lord, from this moment on because we trust not in our faith, but in the power of your resurrection. You have conquered sin and death and the enemy. And you call us to give all that we are to you and promise that when we do, you will rise us up, conform us to the image of Christ. Lord, would you do it for your honor and glory, we pray. Amen.